Hello to all of you listening to this message. My name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those that have not heard any of my messages, I just briefly want to mention that I will be seeking to speak as the oracles of God to you in this message, to allow the Spirit of God to rise up within me and to speak not merely my words, but to allow the Spirit of God to come forth and minister to the very depths of your being as an individual who in the foreknowledge of God has come across this message and also to the corporate body of Christ for this particular hour and time. Part of what I do in regards to that, to facilitate this, is I seek for the Holy Spirit to lead me to the right chapter in the Word of God. I do that by the casting of lots before God that allows an equal chance for any particular chapter in the Bible to come forth. I don't do it as a game. If I did, it wouldn't work. I don't do it with sin in my life or it wouldn't work. That would be the spirit of divination if I did it that way. But no, I am here with faith in the sovereignty of God and in his power, in his omniscience and presence, in omniscience that is attached to every particle of existence, knowing that he knows the end from the beginning and knows exactly where that chapter is going to be each time. And so doing it in faith, I find it works very consistently to speak to me not only personally, but to the body of Christ. So I want to share with you what I received. I only share maybe about twice or more a week. The last time I shared was on Monday, and that was from Luke chapter 4. Amazingly, the next day on Tuesday, November the 25th, I received Luke chapter 3. So I really do want to share some things from that chapter, and we'll make that the chapter I read, not the full chapters. There's a list of genealogies. But I will also share a bit from the other chapters I received. That is on Wednesday, Deuteronomy 17, and on Thursday today, Joshua chapter 22. I want to share what God is saying to you and to the body of Christ now. So first of all, I will begin to read Luke chapter 3, which I received on Tuesday a few days ago. Luke chapter 3. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tatriarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tatriarch of Etria, and of the region of Trachonitis, and Licinius, the Tatriarch of Albany, Ananias and Caiaphas, being the high priest, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill 
shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is sewn down and cast into the fire. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answereth and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also the publicans to be baptized and said unto Master, What shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. And the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John whether he were the Christ or not. John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. And many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. But Herod the Tatriarch, being reproved by him for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was open. And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. And I will leave off there as the rest of this chapter begins to list the lineage through which Christ came. Before I get into this chapter and what the Spirit of God would share through this, these passages, I want to point out an overarching theme that has come out, which is in this chapter, which is about not compromising in our relationship with God and with one another. The next day, I received Deuteronomy 17, and the overall arching theme there is about not compromising, of our sacrifices being totally pure before God, of leadership not having covetousness, and that the root 
of keeping the leadership in a place of humility instead of pride where presumption comes in and they enter into covetousness so that they are not leaders under the leadership of Almighty God is that they choose to fear God in Deuteronomy 17. So that's basically what's there. And then today it was Joshua 22, which again has a theme in it on the importance of not compromising. It's kind of from a different perspective, but the emphasis is still on not compromising. And I will probably mention a bit more in what is being brought forth from those chapters. First, before I continue, I just want a brief drink of water. <clears throat> In regards to John, pardon me, not John, Luke chapter 3, I want to bring forth the aspect of purity here. And so the first thing I want to point out is that John is mentioned in verse chapter 2, and it makes this statement. The word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. This was not some vague impression of an unaudible voice that John heard. It was a very clear and defined visitation of Almighty God in his word to John. We see many examples of similar statements, particularly in the Old Testament. It will say the word of the Lord came to Amos in the days of, the word of the Lord came to Zacharias or whatever other prophet. And this statement has an understanding of a very clearly defined visitation of God to execute his word. We know that there are many examples in the book of Jeremiah of this, and again, God visits very Jeremiah in a very clear way and gives him his word to execute. The reason God's word could come in such purity through these men was because they were purified to be true prophets of God. The word of God says, that his word is as silver that is refined seven times. So I ask you as a believer, where are you in the process of being refined to be a channel of God's word of life, of power, and above all, of love? We are put through the wilderness of trials to expose the deceptions of self and independence of God that we don't even know within us, that come to the surface through the pressures. Like gold that is smelted, the dross comes to the surface, and when we see the ugliness of what we didn't know was in us through the pressures of trial, the enemy will try to condemn us and say, see, that's who you are, you're that dross, so that we put our identity in the old self, which is in rebellion against God. Rather than crying out with faith in the mercy of God to cleanse us through his atoning work from all sin and to forgive us, 
so that we can thereby be purified from those deceptions and come into a greater place of purity where the word of God can flow through us. And so the process goes on until there is a perfection through the trials unless we rebel through those trials. But we can become channels of the word of God so that he can visit us in a defined and clear way. As a clarion call, so to speak, of God to go forth and sound as a trumpet the word of God as Isaiah was told to do. In his case, to declare to the people of God their sins, that they might repent. As many of the other prophets, such as Jeremiah and Ezekiel and others, also had happened to them. In this passage of scripture here, I also want to emphasize that John was very powerful in his preaching. Not because of a gift of oratory, but because of the tremendous anointing of God that was on his life. His voice was amplified by the Spirit of God to carry way beyond normal, I believe. It was amplified also with force and life that came from the Spirit of God. As Christ said, the words that I speak unto you are spirit and life so that it touched the very core of people's beings, so that in this chapter, they're moved because this preaching is so powerful and so anointed and so penetrating to their inner being that they're moved to cry out to John in his preaching and say, what shall we do then? The soldiers are demanding, what shall we do then? When people preach under the powerful anointing of the Spirit of God and the Spirit of prophecy, it strikes to the very core of the soul and of the Spirit to bring a circumcision in the heart. And that is because there has been a conformity in that channel that God is using that has brought a circumcision first in their heart that allows that sword of God's spirit, of his word, that has circumcised their heart to also rise up as a sword within them and to pierce the soul of those that they are preaching to, the souls of those. There's a scripture that says in Hebrews, concerning the Messiah, Jesus Christ, because thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity, therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. A hate for unrighteousness and a love for righteousness is conformity to the being of God's love. And I briefly want to mention and describe the being of God's love. 
It is first a love that has absolute purity of integrity so that it is a blazing fire of judgment, a consuming fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, and deed that would be contrary to the love of God. This is not some mere emotional love. This is a love that always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate fulfillment. That was ultimately manifested in God laying down his life and his son on the cross in order to have the lasting good of a corporate bride that would ever go on throughout eternity in enlargement of love in intimacy with the bridegroom. Elohim, the Almighty's one. So this love that I'm describing is the defensive aspect of the love of God. It is the holiness of God. It is the integrity, the absolute purity of the love of God that requires judgment. And if God was not such, he would not be the container of unlimited life and unlimited power that can be contained without corruption and that thereby also is indicative of him being the very source. Yes, it is the quality of God's love and its integrity that is the source of love. It is the source of unlimited life. It is the very source of goodness, which is the containment of unlimited power and life in a way that is totally enlarging and constructive unto greater and greater fulfillments. And it is this love that John the Baptist was conformed to through the trials that he went through living in the wilderness we don't know what he went through, but we know this, that Christ said of John the Baptist, that there was none greater than John the Baptist, born among men of the prophets and so on. He was deemed by Christ the greatest. And yet when you look at his life, he lived a very short life. He didn't do any major miracles. But in his being, there was a deep conformity to the being of God's love and his integrity from which springs the grace of God or the mercy of God from the foundation of such integrity. I'm not here to get into my in-depth teaching on the being of God and on the fear of God, but I want to point out briefly that it is out of the integrity of God's being of love that there is the foundation for God's love to be expressed without corruption and ever enlarged. And that is ultimately seen is in his expression that he would suffer more than you, a mere creature, and humble himself more than you, a mere creature, in order to take the judgment of all creation that had fallen in sin through indirect temptation in the physical realm upon himself so that we could have the choice as individuals to repent and receive his atoning sacrifice of his love outpoured in his life's blood upon the cross to cleanse us as white as snow and to grant us forgiveness. That 
is a conformity. That is a love that is the highest love there can be. The ultimate perfection of love cannot be higher than a love that has this integrity and that from that can spring forth the moral capacity. Without violating this integrity that requires judgment for God himself to take judgment upon himself. We know that no animal sacrifice could do anything more than cleanse the physical realm. And we know that no sacrifice would be sufficient, even if the human was a righteous human being, to take the judgment of all mankind upon themselves and actually cleanse them. It would take a being, a human being, that would live a perfect, sinless life against all temptation. And that could only be in God. For only God has such a moral capacity. And that is why it says that forgiveness is only in God in various scriptures. Christ said, I am that I am. He describes himself as God because I am that I am is a description of Yahweh, the self-existent one. It is a way of describing ultimate reality. I am that I am. In Hebrew, it is a share, a heya, a share. I am that I am. And Christ said that he had the power to forgive sins because he had the moral and has the moral capacity and in himself to become a perfect atoning sacrifice, which he did on the cross. I will just say this, I believe from the very beginning, from the time of Adam and Eve, they recognized two things. They recognized that forgiveness could only be in God and that this implied that God must have such an ultimate moral perfection that he can be a perfect atoning sacrifice to assure mercy and forgiveness. And if God did not have a love like that, it would be indicative that he cannot assure destiny to his creation, that he was creating beings that were imperfect and would imply that God is imperfect. The ultimate perfection of love that is ultimately therefore trustworthy of trust and ultimately trustworthy is love that springs from the foundation of the integrity of God's love and holiness. The integrity of God's love and holiness is, as it were, the ultimate negative of the universe, which as a negative symbol in mathematics is a horizontal line representing foundation and representing cutting off that which is contrary to this love, this perfection of love, from which springs the positive symbol, which springs forth from that foundation in the symbol of the cross, which is the positive symbol in mathematics. So we have the ultimate negative and positive of the universe, as it were, that releases the life of God when there is reciprocation to that ultimate negative and positive. That is the being of God that is recognized first and received first in his ultimate trustworthiness in required judgment 
because of the integrity of his being, and then thereby recognizes the greatness of God's mercy to one personally, and thus the greatness of God's love to one personally, to assure forgiveness to those that cry out and truly repent. It was because John the Baptist had such a conformity to this being of God's love that it could be transcendent with the power to show mercy. That there was such a powerful anointing on him of the Spirit of God that when he preached caused a echo to go deep into the souls of people and to pierce their hearts so that they said, what shall we do? In this sense, John the Baptist was therefore greater than even men, such as the greatest men of God like Moses and Elijah and others, according to Christ, because of his conformity. That's why he has such a hate for sin in this chapter that he says, how would you like to hear someone address the people, O generation of vipers? Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He says the judgment is at hand. They're already, it's already about that the ax is going to be laid to the root. You'd better repent. And he preaches repentance in this chapter. And that they should bring forth the fruits of repentance. Now, in regards to this, we have in verse 4, this baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, which is preached before Christ died on the cross, because they recognized, as John did, he said, behold, concerning Christ, John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. They recognized from the time of Adam and Eve before Christ that forgiveness was in God and therefore that there must be the moral capacity in God to become a perfect atoning sacrifice, to live a perfect life against temptation and actually humble himself more than the mere creature and suffer more than the mere creature in atoning sacrifice on the cross so that there could be forgiveness. And that's why we see even the Pharisees and the Essenes in the time of Christ believed that there would need to be a suffering Messiah and also a reigning Messiah. They seem to believe there is two different ones in their own natural interpretation. So we have this gospel preached from the time of Adam and Eve that there is one God and that he is holy, but has the power to assure mercy that he can provide and assure forgiveness of sins because he has the capacity within himself to forgive that implies that he himself is a perfect atoning sacrifice. And John had the revelation of this so that he said, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. For those that are new and don't understand this, from the time before Christ, God instituted that they should offer an innocent animal such as a lamb that is totally pure, and they lay their hands on it, which represents their sin being transferred to that lamb, and then it is killed. 
as a symbol of them having their sins cleansed and forgiven. But they recognized the source of forgiveness wasn't in the animal, that only God could forgive, that the animal could only cleanse the physical realm, that there must be within God the power to show mercy, and they believed in that. Now, in this passage of Scripture, I also want to point out for those that are new that it describes the triunity of God. I know I didn't get into too much in verse 4. I should say in verse 3 before verse 4 there. I will come back to verse 4. But I just want now to point out another aspect here. And that is that it describes in this chapter the triunity of God in verse 21. When Christ came to be baptized of John, the heavens open and the Spirit of God descends like a dove upon him. And the voice of God the Father echoes from heaven as a mighty thunder saying, Thou art my beloved Son and Thee I am well pleased. Many of those people around the world believe that Christians believe in three gods. This is the farthest from the truth. And so I briefly want to mention this for those that don't know about this here. That we believe in only one God. He is described as the Almighty's one, Elohim. The word El means Almighty and Ohim is plurality. In Genesis 1, God says, let us, speaking of himself, make man in our image. But the understanding of God is this. As the Father, it is God that is beyond the time and space realm and government, that is the very source and originator of all things, and that sees the end from the beginning because he is beyond the time and space realm. If God could not be in personage and in conscious intelligence beyond the time and space realm, then he would not be God beyond the time and space realm. The Son has the understanding of expression. The word son basically means expression. The son is the full expression of the father into creation. That is the time and space realm. If God could not be in personage within the time and space realm, he would not be able to govern within that realm and therefore would be less than God. So God is also in personage, in conscious intelligence and power within the time and space realm in personage so that he can relate to creation, creation can focus on him. God is also as the Holy Spirit in personage, which is an omnipresence of God's presence everywhere at the same time that can also at any moment in time, anywhere in time, and in many places at the same time, cause things to come forth in creative activity, even raising the dead, reversing molecular structure or whatever. So God is in omnipresence, governing that realm. And so we have, in order for God to be truly God or almighty over all ultimate dimensions of existence, which are beyond time and space, in time and space, and filling all space, we have God known 
as Elohim, meaning the Almighty's one, that is the Father, the Son, the expression of the Father, and the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews 1, it says the Son is the full expression of the Father. And so from the beginning of the time, when people perceived in God the Father, the holiness of God, and did not rebel against the consequences of that holiness and required judgment, but were in utter awe of God and humbled themselves and cried out for mercy, and they perceived the mercy of God. They saw in God the Father the full expression of God to them, which is God the Son. And so Christ says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And he also says, those that have been truly that have truly taught and learned of the Father, come to the Son. Because they come to the Son in the sense that they respond to the being of God in its ultimate perfection, which can only be in this holiness that can be transcendent in mercy, this ultimate negative and positive. When people truly are in awe of the holiness of God, they are brought to a place of total contrition and humility that drives them to a place of total honesty to bring forth a deep turning in their heart that cries out and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. They don't trust in their own righteousness, nor are they deceived to be self-righteous in independence from God. When they truly choose to fear God, which is a choice to recognize God for who he truly is in his holiness and his mercy, or to recognize reality, ultimate reality for what it truly is, for God is the ultimate reality, the I am that I am. And that when God commands us to fear him, it is a command to recognize him and perceive him as ultimately trustworthy, first in his holiness, and then recognizing the greatness of his mercy to us personally, and thus his love to us personally, that we can actually receive forgiveness, the assurance of forgiveness, if we cry out and ask for mercy and forgiveness, and receive his atoning work on the cross of Jesus Christ, and before he came, recognizing that through that innocent lamb, the source of forgiveness is in God in a moral capacity without violating the integrity of his love to assure forgiveness, a moral capacity for atoning sacrifice that could only lie in God. If it was a creature that could forgive us by becoming a perfect atoning sacrifice, we would be giving our trust and our worth to a creature, and therein our glory to a creature, and therein our worship to a creature. But we are called to worship God and him alone, and therefore in him alone is there the ultimate purity of love that is so great that you can be reconciled to God. I want to go back to the part in this chapter now where in the next verse after verse 3 and verse 4, it says this, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. This is John the Baptist who was brought up in the wilderness in a place of harshness, in a place where there was nothing of this world to give him comfort or to cause him to be distracted with busyness and the baits of temporal things. 
And so, in this context of a voice that's been purified through the wilderness of trial, the word of God comes forth, and this is the word of God. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. How is that that we prepare the way of the Lord? By making God's paths straight. Making God's paths straight. Comes about when we choose to fear God. How does that happen in our lives individually and how does it happen corporately? Well, the verse, next verse explains it. For his paths to be straight, the valleys must be brought up. The valleys in our life personally, where we allow our own heart to condemn us. Word of God says that if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Sometimes we condemn ourselves where God does not want us to condemn ourselves. But in most cases, we condemn ourselves because there's sin in our lives that we haven't repented of. Or there's something in our lives we're not willing to let go of. And the enemy comes along and he points out those things that are also exposed in this area through trials. The dross that I talked about earlier that comes to the surface. And he accuses us and saying, that's who you are, you're that dross. And the more we buy into that false accusation and the condemnation of our own heart, the more we become conformed to an identity apart from God. Because we're not willing to believe in his power to forgive us. And to cry out for mercy. Or we become bitter at God because of all the suffering we see around us and in our own lives. So that we become alienated like Cain who was rebellious against the curse. And started to look at God as an enigma, as a, some strange being that somehow was demanding. But he lost sight of the goodness of God that was behind that required holiness of God and judgment. But God is calling us as individuals to not allow ourselves to shrink back, to become withdrawn and depressed, and to somehow believe God's against us and that we're never going to amount to any good. Also, God is saying that to the corporate body of Christ. How does that happen? When we assemble together, we are to assemble together to gather around Christ. It says in the word of God, unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Many of us in the churches nowadays have our own programs. We like to have control over the meetings. It's probably just a few people at the front that run everything. In many churches, this is the case. The prayer meetings, hardly anyone comes to them. The pre-service prayer meetings. Here's what God is saying. 
Make my house a house of prayer. Forget the pre-service prayer meetings. You start your church service on your knees. Leadership, get on your knees and seek God. Become aware of whose presence you're in. Humble yourselves under his mighty hand. Call the congregation and yourself to get on your faces and on your knees before God. And just be in utter awe of whose presence you're in. Be still and know that I'm God. Learn to wait on him and let and curb your own presumptive words and self-initiations before God till you're in utter fear of reverence of God so that you are humbled in the place of awe that brings you to the place of humility that drives you to the place of honesty and transparency before God for a true heart of repentance. When this happens, then you can rise because there will be the rending of the veil in your heart so that you can perceive the holiness of God in his glory. You see, it's out of the holiness of God that issues wholeness in our being because the holiness of God is what contains reality, reality being that which has no corruption in it, that is without death, without destructiveness, that is indestructible and unchangeable and everlasting. That is the essence of reality. Look it up in a dictionary. And truth is defined as that which is real or reality. And that is who God is. He is ultimate reality. And so, out of that circumcision of the heart, there's revelation of the holiness of God and of the wholeness of God from which issues the beauty and the glory of God. And soon we are filled with the presence of God. It distills as dew in our being that is reflects light like dew on the grass reflects light. It says in the word of God, thy doctrine shall distill as the dew. Dew catches the light. And we catch the revelation of who God is. And we see how beautiful he is. The beauty, the ultimate source of beauty that issues from the ultimate source of wholeness, which issues from God's being of holiness that springs forth with grace and mercy. And so when we see that beauty like a lover looking into the lover's face, you are just filled with a spontaneity of adulation that sings forth in praise the beauty of the Lord. In worship and in creative song and prophetic song. There's another sense in which the valleys are lifted up, which is described by the Apostle Paul by the Holy Ghost when he says this, God has so tempered the body together that he gives more abundant honor Onto the part that lacks that there should be no schism in the body of Christ. When the leadership in the church repents of trying to control a meeting instead of letting God be the center of the meeting and people being conscious of God being the center and more sensitive to Christ in the midst than they are to the leadership. When they allow each member of the body to express the gifts of the Spirit in total freedom, and facilitate it. That allows God to bring a more abundant 
gifting upon those that are not looked up to as highly. So that it humbles those that tend to be looked up to. The word of God says in Proverbs that contention or division comes by pride. So pride is dealt with and the mountains are brought down. And when that is the case, that there's no mountains and there's no valleys, corporately and individually, that our pride is brought down and also the condemnation in our own heart and from the enemy is taken away, then the paths of the Lord are becoming straight. And it goes on in this passage to say that the hills will also be brought low. And it goes on to say, and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places made smooth. Crookedness speaks of those that may worship out of filthiness of flesh and spirit. We are to purge ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit that we may worship God out of a pure heart in spirit and in truth. As Paul the Apostle said, we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and truth and have no confidence in the flesh. There are those that can try to have a confidence in the flesh in their worship before God because their spirits are impure. And so they manifest a weirdness like Ananias, not, not Ananias, but uh, the sons of Phineas, the, no, of Eliezer the priest. In the Old Testament, they were smitten dead by God because they offered strange fire before God. If there isn't the fear of God and there isn't the awe of God and there isn't humility, I have seen people that start to behave weird in meetings and manifest things because they want to get people to behave like them. I'm not saying that God can't bring laughter that he can't bring deep wailing of repentance. But when people start laughing because they want to get other people giggling and it's just a flirting thing and there's not the depth of humility and awe of God, it is filthiness of flesh and spirit and worship. It is taking people away from focusing on the glory of God individually and corporately. The crooked places will be made straight and also the rough places will be made smooth. God is coming for a church that's without spot and wrinkle. That is what he's seeking. He's seeking a bride. So if you're in a denomination and you will not receive others that don't believe all of your special little unique doctrines, and you're so comfortable that you're just wanting to stay in your denominational shell and not be open to the whole counsel of God. Are you part of that bride that's pure and without spot and wrinkle? The bride that is pure and without spot and wrinkle will not be divisive. It will receive every member of the body of Christ as Christ received us as sinners. As Paul the apostle exhorted that we are to receive one another as Christ received us as sinners. God is calling his church to repent of divisiveness because of control that does not allow the fullness of God's presence to function through each member of the body and also that 
allows the shells of denominationalism that holds back the fullness and the purity and the glory that God wants of his bride. He is calling us, and you can as a denomination, cast off your denominational cell so that you're no longer denominational. And so I strongly emphasize repent of being denominational. Repent of not being open to the full counsel of God. Repent of being divisive. Repent of control. Repent of the gods of amusement, of pleasure. Instead of redeeming the time. So many of us are filled with idleness, and yet it says in the word of God that the sin of Sodom was abundance of bread, pride, and idleness. How is it that the church today will promote so many things that take up people's time and the leadership will emphasize these things or, or focus on them so that people are drawn away and do not have a life of prayer. God's calling us back to a life of prayer where we know such a delight in God's presence and of being in the pleasure of his presence that the things of this world no longer have an attraction to us. We're dead to them because we're being purified into such an intimacy with God. But those things don't mean anything anymore. They're shallow, they're empty, compared to the fulfillment we have of the abiding reality of God's presence in our being. God is calling his church to repent and to bring forth the fruits of repentance because he is coming back to his house. He's coming back to inhabit a bride. And I'm going to share here, you can conquer your community as a church you can conquer your city as a church. You can conquer your nation, body of Christ, so that there is a nation of light within the nation of darkness that will enter in to the gates of that new Jerusalem that it describes in Revelations chapter 21. God is calling his people to come forth. so that they conquer their nation. That happens when we become like heaven on the earth, where we learn to repent of the hardness that is formed around our hearts because we're caught up with the gods of amusement and idleness and the loves of the world, which is an adultery with the world from God, which creates an adultery in families and marriages due to hardness of heart, and we need to repent of those things. Recognize that God has something so much more better for us. We need to repent so that husbands go to their wives and humble themselves and wash, literally wash their feet with a towel and vice versa. So that the hardness in the heart is broken, but first let us go before the very feet of God in utter awe and reverence, corporately as the body of Christ, and learn to break the shell of our lives, of its hardness, like Mary did before his feet. She broke that alabaster box, and out came the perfume 
May we break what we consider precious as our time and energy before him, that we may know the perfume of his presence flowing forth out of us unto him and vice versa to us. Oh, I could spend a lot more time preaching here and singing a beautiful song. I don't know if I'll sing it at the end here, but I know this, that God is calling us in this hour to conquer our nations because the hour is urgent. And the way it happens is when we become like it is in heaven, willing to go to the other person, even when they're more in the wrong and humble ourselves before them and wash their feet and say, forgive me for where I've hurt you. And see the pride in them be broken down in love so that they repent with tears in their eyes as we wash their feet. I know a lady that came up to me and told me in a church service that she was getting ready to divorce her husband. It was just frustrated with him. And God kept challenging her to wash his feet with a towel and she wouldn't do it. And finally she did. And when she did, he said, no, no. But he broke down in tears. And she broke down in tears. And they were reconciled and they've had a good marriage for 25 years. God is calling his church to repent of the hardness from loving the world, from adultery with the world that has caused a hardness between one another with denominationalism, with divisiveness, with divorces and marriage. And start to be in a place where the house of God is a house of prayer and worship so that the glory of God can come down. Then we will be, as it says in the word of God, you are being built together as an habitation of God through the spirit. That we might be knit together in love, that we may be able to comprehend with all saints the height and the depth and the breadth of God's love, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. And when the fullness of God's glory can inhabit the living stones, you and me, because we come into such a unity around that chief cornerstone, it will have the power to literally shake our nation, to shake our community with his presence so that when we go forth, we go forth in the power and the demonstration of the spirit in the greater works. I don't have time to go into the other chapters I mentioned that I would share with. I will say this, that it emphasizes in Deuteronomy 17 to bring a sacrifice that is totally pure and that anything less is an abomination before God. That's in verse 1. And it goes to, on to emphasize the leadership that has lots of wives, that allows wealth to be accrued. That the problem with that leadership is that they become presumptuous. And the reason they became presumptuous is mentioned in the last part of verse 14 to 20 is because they failed to fear God. It is the fear of God that keeps us from a state of pride. It is the secret to worshiping God. And in Joshua 22, it emphasizes an interesting thing against compromise. It's talking about how the tribe of Reuben and Benjamin, no, Reuben and Manasseh and Gad were given inheritance on the other side of the river and how they built that large altar and the other part of the nation of Israel 
thought that they were building an idol. And so they came to confront them with war because they assumed they had committed offense against God. And here's the brief notes I said about that, which I will give in closing on this message in Joshua 22. When we truly desire to be one with the Lord and with each other in the body of Christ, it is important that we do not overlook the differences between each other that have potential for division. It is important to expose those differences that could cause misunderstanding in the process in order to bring the other party or individuals to confront the misunderstanding. In other words, we're willing to be genuine before the others, one another, even if it causes misunderstanding, so that they deem that we're in compromise or offense against God. There must be such a love for God and a hate for what is against the love of God to confront all that may appear to be sin against God also. And that's what the other tribes did. To indeed be prepared to cut such individuals or groups off as those tribes of Israel were prepared to do. This is if indeed they are in sin and likewise to receive them with covenant to remove such misunderstandings in the future if they are not in sin. If Israel had not confronted the seeming compromise, it would have given ground for the enemy to bring compromise into their camp, to verbally communicate with the other party that may, that may deem that we are seeking to compromise. Them in relationship to God clears up the misunderstanding and bridges the gap against the accuser of the brethren and protects the glory of God's name. That's all I can share on this because if I go on to share here, this message is going to be very, very long. So thank you for listening to this message. May you take up the challenge to carry, to be a carrier of God's word individually and corporately by having a consuming love for God that consumes out of our zeal for the glory of God all the dross in our lives. As John the Baptist said in this chapter, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. May the fire of God be a consuming fire within us to consume the dross of all those things that would misrepresent the glory of God and dull the, his reflection of glory in us. God bless you all. Thank you for listening.